A number of years ago, uh, while Amy and I were still in London, we were at a church service, a church that we attended about 10 years ago. And my father and mother were visiting us. I don't know quite the reason, but every so often they'll take a trip and come say hi, um, pay for our dinner and that sort of thing. Anyway, we were at the end of the church service. And I think that particular church service had been concerned with uh, money, been concerned with, I think, the need of the church at that point, And there was an encouragement uh, for us as members of the congregation to engage in that work and to, uh, to give. And uh, at the end of the service, Amy and I were stood at the back and my mother was stood with me and we just couldn't find my father. And I said to my mum, where's dad? Where on earth has he gone? We, you know, we want to get on to lunch. Where's this free meal you promised? And of course, my mum pointed back to the seats where my father was still seated, uh, bending over, doing something, looking fairly intently involved in something. I said, what on earth is he doing? And she, almost with a sigh, said, He's giving. And I said, why? Why is he This isn't his church. He doesn't belong here. This isn't something he has to do. And the words, her response, I'll never forget. She said, he just can't help himself. Just can't help himself. Talk about, today we're going to be talking about generosity, what it means to be a generous person. But I want us to begin in that place, not to glorify my dad, but to say that that attitude of generosity is so central in the Christian faith. And as Paul talks to the church and about the church in Philippi, it's, it's this attitude of generosity so deeply prizes. What would it mean? This question, let's begin with this question. What would it mean for us to become a people who just can't help ourselves, but be generous to one another, but be generous to our city, that is what I want to talk about today. That's what Paul has in mind. A people, we can take that off the screen just for now, who are an unstoppable force. If, if it's easy to do. <laughs> it's not, okay. All right, keep it up for the remainder. The last three weeks uh, here, as we've been journeying through Philippians, have been, if you like, a, a mini-series on, on freedom. Uh, three weeks ago, I said, or maybe it's two weeks ago, three sermons ago, certainly, I was talking about uh, Philippians chapter 3 and how Paul says to the church in Philippi, you are justified. And how that means that, uh, that you're declared, we are, each of us, declared to be in the right with God. That that, if you like, is the declaration, it's the banner over our lives, that we as people are declared to be in the right with God. And that that declaration, made not on the basis of our own performance, but on the basis of Jesus' faithfulness, Jesus' obedience to God, that is the truest thing about us. And because of that, we can be free. We don't have to perform in order to be loved, but we can be free to live out of that grace, knowing that God is already pleased. He's already accepting of us. That leads to freedom. That declaration is itself deep freedom for us if we get hold of it. Then last week, Amy said, well, hang on. But yet we have to walk into that freedom. It's not just as simple as hearing some preacher talk about it and then snapping our fingers and we're there. In fact, walking into freedom is the journey. It is the Christian journey, and it's a journey that takes every single day of our lives. She talks about how we need to, how we need to take hold of freedom. How we need to then take action for our freedom and how we must, uh, at all costs, keep on walking in our freedom. That journey never stops. It is the journey of discipleship. 
And Paul, this week, I think he's almost like cashing out what that looks like. And, and you'll have noticed as the, as the reading was shared that he talks about a couple of inward attitudes of freedom. He talks about contentment, doesn't he? He talks about uh, his own life and that he's content in every circumstance. He's learned the secret of contentment. That's an inward attitude of freedom, if you like. Not, not desiring more all the time, but living in contentment. He also talks another inward attitude about anxiety and, and overcoming anxiety through uh, thanksgiving and through rejoicing. Again, that would be an inward attitude of freedom. Now, we could speak about both of those things this morning and spend the rest of our time doing so. We're probably going to return to some of that later in the year. We're going to talk about emotional health and what that means. So I'm not going to zero down too much on those two things now. But Paul then goes to, on to say, I think, uh, what, what does it look like for us to be outwardly free? What would be an outward manifestation of freedom? And it's here that I want to focus because Paul then talks about generosity in this connection. Generosity, according to Paul, is a manifestation of freedom. And we could talk about generosity in a million different ways this morning. I mean, we could talk about uh, our time, but being generous people with our time and with that precious resource in a busy 21st century Western culture, how time is one of the most precious resources we have to give. And yes, that is true. We could do that. But we could also talk about our talents, uh, that, these resources, these precious resources God has given us that we share with one another. And of course, again, that is also very important. But I want to focus this morning, and I'm expecting groans, but I want to focus this morning on the, on the third T, if you like, and that is treasure. Uh, what we do with our money. And how, how crucial what we do with our money is to our discipleship. And I'm aware, as, even, as I, even as I was preparing this week, I'm aware how strange it feels to be doing that. And I think it feels strange because we're so afraid of talking about money with one another just more widely in our culture. You know, there's three things you never mention at a dinner party, right? Money, sex, politics. I don't think I'll mention politics this morning, but we'll see about the other two. It's a joke. Just money, don't worry, folks. They're like, oh, two, two of the three. Um, we're reticent, just more widely in our British culture, there's a reserve which says, here and no further. But I think that reticence isn't just a cultural thing. I think it is a deep human thing. I think there is a deep tie in us as human beings in this area. And that tie, if we're going to walk on in, in God, if we're going to get further and deeper with Jesus, that tie has to be addressed and it has to be broken. Jesus had a lot to say about money. In fact, I, I think Jesus is at his most radical when he's talking about money. The only other area, I was thinking, the only other area I think he gets even close to as radical is when he talks about violence. But he's so radical when he talks about money. I don't know if you've noticed the slide here. <laughs> but if you haven't, let me draw your attention to the screens. <laughs> 16 of the 38 parables Jesus teaches on are concerned with how to handle money and possessions. In the Gospels, eight, I assume you can read, but for the purpose of the tape, a tenth of verses in the Gospels deal directly with the subject of money. This one got me. The Bible has 500 verses on prayer, a little under 500 verses on faith, and over 2,000 on money and possessions. 
This is not some kind of peripheral thing. What we do with our wallets is not peripheral to who we are. It's central to who we are. In fact, Luther said, a man must undergo two conversions. This is also true of women. He was using man inclusively. A human must undergo two conversions. One of his heart and the second of his pocketbook. Jesus had some powerful things to say. Let's have the first slide. Didn't expect that. Here we go. Jesus said to him, Matthew 19, 21, if you wish to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, give the money to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Jesus said, Mark 10, 23, then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Matthew 6, 24, no one, can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And here we're, we, we narrow down, we, we're burrowing deep into the issue. And here is the issue. It's an issue of worship. It's an issue of devotion. It's an issue of affection. Money is the only other God Jesus names. Mammon, you cannot serve God and mammon, the Aramaic term. He personalizes it because it has such a personal grip in our lives as human beings. He's trying to crowbar it out. What he's saying is that you cannot be devoted to two masters. You cannot have two gods. But where we have a focus in our lives, where our affection, our attention, our desire is focused on something other than God, that thing becomes, and here's a biblical term, an idol. Tim Keller has a great definition of idolatry. He says this, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs, this is a great line, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. And anything that you seek to give, anything that you seek to give what, what only, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. There, we got, got there in the end. If he goes on to say, to practice idolatry is to turn a good thing into an ultimate thing. Nobody is saying, I think in the Bible, nobody's saying money is bad. It doesn't say that money is the root of all evil in the New Testament. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Money in itself is, an, is, not, is arbitrary. It's not neither good nor bad. It can be used for good things. And it can be used for bad things. The question is not what is money. But the question is this. What is my relationship to money? What is my relationship? Specifically, where is my heart when it comes to money? The matter of worship always comes down to the posture of the heart. Where is my heart? C.S. Lewis said, the problem with idolatry is this, idols always break the hearts of their worshippers. Why are we talking about this this morning? Here's, here's the thing. Because if money is our God, if any other thing other than Jesus Christ is our God, our God we will end up heartbroken. 
this is, a, this is about the human heart. This is, about, this is a matter of discipleship and it cuts right to the core of what it means to be human beings. The, the gospel is the good news that if we follow Jesus and his way, his design for life, if we follow in his footsteps, we can become fully human. We will become fully human. That's the vision And so that means an engagement with freedom in this area too. So the question then, of course, is, well, what does freedom look like in this area? What would it mean? What would the evidence be? What would the example in our lives be if we were growing increasingly free? What would it look like? And I think what we see in this uh, this text, particularly in 2 Corinthians, where, where Paul is is actually talking to a completely different church, church in Corinth, but he's boasting about the church we've been reading about, the church in Philippi. What we see is that freedom in this area looks like generosity. Freedom looks like generosity. And the Philippians get it. What do we read Philippians about the Philippians, the church in Macedonia, the church in Philippi? 2 Corinthians 8. Let's just read a few verses reading from verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace God has given the Macedonian churches in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. That to, let's just stop there. That is incredible to me. In the midst of a severe trial, a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. And I, I sort of, when I was reading this the first time, I sort of imagined it like a, like a mathematical equation. Some of you remember doing maths a few years ago at school. Some of you are probably doing maths degrees now. But if you just put that, just put that, if you will, imagine an equation. One plus one equals two. Well, here's, here's the equation. Overflowing joy plus extreme poverty and then you've got an arrow, and then on top of the arrow, because sometimes they do that as well, is very severe trial. What comes out? What comes out of the other side? Surely it's a desire to take hold of the only things we have which are secure. Let's just, let's just sort of narrow down. We're in a severe trial. Let's just hunker down for the winter, shall we? Let's, let, you know, let's just gather our resources together. Let's, let's get safe and let's get secure. And actually with the Philippians, we see exactly the reverse. We see an overflowing, a wealth of generosity, rich generosity. What is the character? What is the character of freedom? It is generosity. It is a wealth of generosity. And I think when you begin to understand the source of this generosity, it makes sense. We read later in verse 8. Paul says uh, in chapter 8, verse 8, he says this, I'm not commanding you. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you, and referring there to the Philippians, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. A wealth of generosity. The source of that generosity is an experience of the grace of Jesus. And this has got to be the beginning point. This has got to be where we all understand it starts. This is not about proving to one another how generous we are. You know, this is not striving. This is not human work. This is 
response. This is grace-filled response to the activity of God in Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying is these Philippians, they've seen the cross. And they're so moved by worship when they look at Jesus. They're so moved by his example, but they just can't help themselves. Generosity, in other words, begins in the heart. It is a matter of worship, and it begins in the heart. It begins with an experience of the grace of God. It isn't a human working. The true character of it, then, is a wealth, rich generosity. Secondly, though, we'd have to say that uh, the church in Philippi teaches that it's not something which is under compulsion. In fact, Paul says... I testify, they gave as much as they were able, verse 3, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. Love that phrase. In fact, in another example, it says voluntarily. True biblical generosity then is is not about coercion. It's not about manipulation. It's voluntary. It comes, it emerges from the heart. What happens is people's hearts are touched by God. They're moved by his spirit. They experience his presence. And they just, they just, it flows out into generous giving. It flows out into generosity. A generosity might be expressed as a smile to somebody else, as a hug. It could be anything. But you know this, don't you? When you spend an hour in somebody's presence, and that person is loving there's somebody, you know, that you just know. When, when you spend time with them, they're, they're just really kind. They feed you cake. They give you coffee. They look at, they give you a hug. Whatever it is, don't you come out of that place just infused, overflowing with love to share? That's how it works. We spend time in God's presence. We experience his wealth of generosity and it overflows in our lives. We voluntarily give out of the overflow of what he's given to us it's voluntary it's voluntary remember a few years ago amy and i were uh, a different church in london actually at htb where we came out of and and we were in particular need because um i don't know how this well i do know exactly how it happened but um we were pregnant with kids uh but twins two two children at one time that, that bit was a mystery um and um and that meant that we had to change various things in our lives and one of the things we had to change was our car now, we'd sort of gone from that, you know, the family sort of hatchback thing, which my parents had given us, uh, and we had to upgrade. We sort of had to go through Mondeo. We missed the Mondeo phase entirely. <laughs> we went straight from sort of Honda Jazz, which you can get away with two kids, straight through Mondeo, all the way to minivan. <laughs> it was a disturbing transition for a number of reasons. And, uh, not least, uh, there was an identity crisis that emerged for me, but also then just a financial crisis. And one Sunday morning, I'd been leading a service to HDB, and I, and I finished, and I'd missed a call from somebody who I'd been spending some time with and was a friend, a, a, somebody becoming a friend. Not, not somebody I knew that well, but I was getting to know this person. I really enjoyed their company. And, and they hadn't made it to church that morning, from the church, but they hadn't made it to church. And, and the phone call, uh, essentially, I called them back. And we'd been praying about it. I remember praying about it that very morning. And this guy just said, look, I've been praying with my wife. We didn't make it to church. We did pray at home. And I've been praying, and um, I, felt, I just felt the Lord lead us to ask you, do you have a need? Is there anything you need at the moment? And I tell you what, it was the hardest thing for me to say, yeah, we do. I sort of batted around it for, well, we, yeah, we might. We, 
there's, there's, there's some things that, yes, probably, probably some shoes uh, or, yeah, <laughs> yeah, good, um, yeah, yeah, there's some things. And he was like, no, what do you need? We felt, is there something you need? Is it, it doesn't, doesn't matter how big it is. What is it? I said, you know, honestly, we really need a car. We really need a car. And uh, he said, wow, that's, that's so encouraging. We were praying for you, and we felt like God say, uh, you need to ask them what they need, and uh, we just want to, can you give me your bank details? I want to just put some money in your account. Anyway, later that day, uh, it was 5,000 pounds sitting in our account. It was extraordinary, extraordinary, completely voluntary. They'd heard God. They'd been with God that morning. They weren't at church. They should be told off for that. <laughs> Just, just uh, I, t- I, saw, I saw the money in our account. I couldn't bear to rebuke him. <laughs> this church gave cheerfully. That's what it says in, verse, in chapter 9, verse 7. It, said God's, it says God loves a cheerful giver. The word there is the word hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. These guys, they just were in God's presence. The Lord said this, and they just responded hilariously. Amazing. But it goes beyond just a voluntary giving. It's a wealth of generosity pouring out into voluntary giving, but it becomes sacrificial for this church in Philippi. I testify, verse 3, that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. The NRSV version says they gave sacrificially. This is advanced giving. This is Royal Marine giving. (laughs) This is, for those Americans, this is Navy SEAL giving. Culturally relevant, folks, here at Trinity. (laughs) This is above and beyond. There are different levels of giving. And I want to just take a couple of minutes to, to talk through a couple. I think this comes from Bill Hybels. I nicked it off Bishop Paul, but there we go. I think this is a really helpful uh, framework for us. This church in Philippi is a bit further along the line. They're at sacrificial giving, but actually we don't always begin there. We begin in our giving journey with personal interests. We have the, the next slide. We'll get there. We're going to get there. The first level at which we begin is, is giving, through, there we go, personal interest, all of them, there we go, personal interest. Okay, we'll get there. Personal interest, we start out with personal interest. Giving through personal interest is where you show up to church or maybe the golf club or somewhere else, or wherever you're interested in being, and, um, and you, you see that the lights are on, and you see that there's warm coffee, and it's, it's half decent, and you know that your children are being cared for, and you think, gosh, I'm getting something out of this. Because of my personal interest in it, I want to contribute. That's a great start. That's the first beginning place in giving. And actually, there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. That is where, I think, for many of us, our journey begins with personal interest. It's fantastic. If you're not engaged here and you're here regularly, I'd encourage you to maybe begin there. But personal interest is just the first place. We need to get beyond personal interest. And actually, if we're there, we haven't yet begun. If we're only there, we haven't yet begun biblical giving. The next phrase, place, there we go, well done. Now, by, can I just confess here? By accident, I, on this PowerPoint, um, when, when we were going to click the slides, it was going to come up with confetti. It was going to be very funny because I didn't complete it by accident, but you'll miss the confetti, but I'll show you it later if you're really keen. The second level of, of giving is gratitude. We've moved beyond personal interest, but we now give because we're grateful. In other words, there's been some encounter with God. He's done something in our lives. And because of that, we want to give back to him. Psalm 116 says in the, in the message version, what can I give back to God for the blessings he's poured out on me? I'll raise a cup in celebration, a toast to God. <laughs> 
That's giving out of gratitude. That's the next level. The third level beyond gratitude is obedience. We don't just give because we're grateful, although we do, but we go beyond that and we start to ask the question, what does the scripture say about giving? And we might engage with the, the scriptural background to tithing. This thing which is, really runs all the way through the core of the Bible that God's people will give him the first and the best. The first tenth, the first ten percent of what comes in, that God's people give that out. I'm not going to uh, defend tithing in any great detail, but I know certain people say, well, actually, in the New Testament, we're no longer under the law. We're under grace. And therefore, tithing doesn't hold true. And I would say two things to that. First of all, uh, Tithing begins as a biblical principle before the law is given. It is not tied to the Old Testament law. It comes in before the law. Secondly, if we're under grace, surely God's grace in Christ Jesus should take us beyond simply giving the tenth. And actually, I think the tenth is a great baseline. It's a great beginning point. Some of us aren't there yet. That's absolutely fine. We must each work out in our own hearts where we're at. But for me and for Amy, a tenth has been a great, for the last sort of 10 years since we've been married, it's been a great baseline. It's been great to say, Lord, that's yours. The first ten, It's all yours. 100% of it's yours. But that first 10, just before I even think about it, it's out the door. It goes to you. It goes to you. That's one of the scriptural sort of baselines. The other one is a free will offering. We see this in the Bible where God's people, beyond the tenth, they just say, you know what? There's something going on. Nehemiah, the walls need to be rebuilt. We're going to have a free will offering. Hey, this is really fun. Hilarious giving. We're going to go way beyond. And there have been points in, in uh, my life and with Amy and together, we've, we've gone beyond. We've said, Lord, we're going to go into our savings or we're going to go beyond what we feel able to or what we need to or what we feel is a baseline with tithing. That's obedience. And again, we'll be at different points on our journey here. The next one is uh, sacrificial giving. As I said, this is where the church in Philippi has got to. They gave even beyond their means. Now, I've got to be honest with you, this is where I find it, this is where I begin to find it really hard. I'm okay up to obedience. I, I've, I've, sort of, I've sort of drilled that. I've just been doing that for a lot of years now, and it's just it's become easier. It's just become part of my habit. Sacrificial giving, I really struggle. And sacrificial giving is where we say, I'm going to go beyond what's possible for me. It's a step of faith. It's a leap into the unknown. And it's like, I mean, I think of, um, you know, that story in, the, in Jesus sees the lady emptying the final coin she has, the widow's mite, the final coin into the temple treasury. And he says, this woman did far more than all the others who gave far more. Because why? They gave out of their abundance. But this poor woman gave all that she had to live on. That's sacrificial giving. Wow! That's where, that's where it begins to cost us. Really begins to cost us. But God is calling us into that kind of life. Beyond that, beyond sacrificial giving, we have the final one, which is just love. Great biblical example is, I think, the, the lady who pours the alabaster jar of ointment. You know that one? Perfume. If you've not read this story, just read it later. It's awesome. And she comes to Jesus and it actually is preparing him for his burial. And she gets this massive vat of pure nard, which is just great. Probably smells amazing. And, and she just, it is, it, we find out later that it's, it's a year's worth of wages in a jar. She breaks up in the jar and she pours it all over Jesus. And she uh, 
She dries his feet with her hair. It's an extraordinary act of devotion. A whole year's worth of wages in one go. And it's the kind of gift where if you ask that person, why on earth did she do it? You ask somebody else, why on earth did she do it? Maybe you ask Jesus, why on earth did she do it? The only answer would be, love made her do it. Love made her do it. This is the final, this is graduate level giving. Again, I don't pretend to be here. But it is a challenge to me, it's a challenge to each of us that this is a journey we can all take. The church in Philippi gives sacrificially and they give confidently. They give confidently knowing that God will bless their giving. Back to Philippians 4 as I come into land. Verse 19, Paul says, My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. My God will meet all your needs. We can give confidently. We can be generous in confidence. Why? Because we know that God is more generous than you or I will ever be. He will always reward. He will not leave his people. There is a blessing connected with generosity. Now, I'm not saying it's one for one. I'm not saying if we give money, we always get money back. We don't have that kind of confidence. But we know that God rewards generosity. He loves it because he is a generous God. Freedom. Not some brave heart way, but in a, a rich and simple way. Freedom is evidenced in part through our generosity, through our willingness to pour ourselves out. What's the basis? What's the foundation of generosity? It's trust. Trust is the soil in which generosity prospers. Trust is the soil in which generosity grows. Here's why it matters. Trust is where we're headed. We need to be a people who grow in devotion, who grow in trust. We can become those people with the Spirit of God at work, with each other's example, with each other's encouragement, heading towards the image of generosity given to us, which is Jesus Christ, who didn't hold a portion back. He didn't say, this far and no further. But he gave his all day in, day out to his disciples, day in, day out to the world around him. And ultimately, he gave his whole life on the cross. He is our vision. He is our example. And he is the one who inspires generosity step by step, inch by inch, sometimes leaping and bounding forward, sometimes walking slowly, stumbling and fitfully. But he's the one. He's the image. He's the one who's taking us forward into lives of generosity. We could have a great church. We could have great worship. We could even have half-decent preaching and above-average coffee. But if we didn't get this, we wouldn't be good news. If we didn't get this, we wouldn't be good news to this city. It wouldn't be good news that Trinity Church was here. It would not be good news. Because what could they expect from us? Certainly not that we would share our hearts, our lives, and even our resources with them. But what we've been called to do here is to share everything. Because Jesus is our model. Though he was rich, he became poor. So that we and they 
who are poor might become rich. What would it look like to be a people joining him on that journey? What adventure might that be? What might it look like for us? Why don't we stand?